Acts 24 and verse 22. Acts 24, 22. Let's get right down to it. We listen to God's word today. Praise the Lord. How are you all doing today? Everybody good? Good? All right. Praise the Lord. Don't let the gray outside get you down. That doesn't mean a thing. Praise the Lord. Now for some light. The light of God's word. The light of his presence. Our Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us, Lord, to understand your word, to receive it, and to be encouraged by it. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you know the setting, because we've been in this chapter for a few weeks. You know that Paul has had the opportunity to appear before Antonius Felix, the Roman governor of the region at the time. And verse 22 then describes this. When Felix heard these things, that is, the things that first the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders made in their accusations, and then Paul's explanation of what was really going on. When Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, we explained that term already a couple of times, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And this verse 25 is where we spent most of our time last time I preached two weeks ago. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. We went through most of this two weeks ago. There was one part of it that I left off, and uh, I want to address that today because I don't think it's something that, that can just be left there. And that is, of course, the issue, the, the example of Felix's response to hearing the gospel and how that went down, and, and what that teaches us. In this account, there's something that we need to remember that's really important. We read about the dear Apostle Paul, and how he's persecuted, and how the Lord stands with him. We read about how he was once again falsely accused, this time in front of this Roman governor. We read about how he just very plainly and humbly and boldly and courageously and truthfully made his defense of what was really going on. But here's the thing I don't want you to forget. While there were other people around, 
the unique presence that gets described for us here is that of this Roman official, Antonius Felix. And we talked a little bit about who he is. But apart from the specific historical details known about him and about his wife, we know that he's a powerful man, a man of great authority, who has even well-equipped and well-trained legions at his disposal. But what is he? He's a man. He's a man who's lost. And he's a man who needs to be saved. We know that there's only one way for a person to be saved. And we know that when the Apostle Paul was reasoning about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, that's a description of how he preached the gospel to Felix and his wife and anyone else who was there. But especially the one that we're taught about in his reaction is Felix. Don't lose sight of the fact of what this is. For all of the surroundings, for all of the details concerning the setting, for all of even the interesting and important historical details that are presented, for all of the description of the place that Christianity, the way as it's called here, fits in with the teachings of the Jewish religious leaders and the way it clashes with the religious sensibilities of the Roman world. For all of that, this is the account of one Christian witnessing to one non-Christian. And we need to take from that what it ought to be for us. You can't escape as you go through the book of Acts that the most important thing that happens in the book of Acts is the spreading of the gospel of Christ. Many have pointed out down through the centuries and recent times, and you've heard many preachers say it, and I've repeated it myself, the fact that this book of Acts has no real literary conclusion to it. You get to Acts chapter 28 and you just come to the end of the book and there's no like amen on the end or there's no, uh, there's no like great commission on the end of it or there's no like, you know, the Apostle John saying like if, uh, if everything about Jesus was known, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. There's no grand conclusion to it. It just abruptly kind of stops. And the reason for that is the work that is presented in the book of Acts has never stopped. That ought to get an amen. Because if the work in the book of Acts had stopped at some point, you and I might not have any hope. But somebody at some point in their life, maybe in this church, maybe this pulpit, or maybe just someone you know or or whatever... Somebody at some point realized that they were still part of, in whatever way God led them, what's happening here in the book of Acts, the preaching of the gospel. And they brought the gospel of Christ to you. Maybe not personally. Maybe they handed you a piece of literature. 
Maybe they broadcast a sermon on the radio or online or something. Maybe it's a member of your family who invited you to come to church and week after week after week of hearing these things preached in church, you eventually came to Christ. Whatever. But somebody somewhere, maybe multiple people, realize that it is still upon the Christian as it was upon the Apostle Paul to present the gospel of Christ to people wherever they go. We cannot lose sight of this or somehow think that like because we hear this all the time, it somehow becomes like less the prominent thing. Brothers and sisters, the chief task of you and I is the spreading of the gospel to this world. It is your chief task. And if I stand up here every single week and bore you to sleep by every week preaching to you that you need to be preaching the gospel to every creature, I will not apologize. This is what we are called to. This is what we must do. This is what we will be accountable for before the Lord who redeemed us. You and I need to be part of the work of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon. I have a couple of quotes about the gospel from Charles Spurgeon. And I have one from John MacArthur. And the second of these quotes, he makes some reference to Felix. And that's one of the things that drew my attention to it. But Charles Spurgeon said this. The hearing of the gospel involves the hearer in responsibility. You get that? In other words, the way that you, if I'm interpreting Charles Spurgeon, but the way that a person is made known of their responsibility and accountability for judgment before God is by the preaching of the gospel. That person sleepwalks blindly through life until someone preaches the gospel to them. The hearing of the gospel involves the hearer in responsibility. It is a great privilege to hear the gospel. You may smile and think there is nothing very great in it. The damned in hell know. Oh, what would they give if they could hear the gospel now? Those who are in hell. If they could come back and entertain but the shadow of a hope that they might escape from the wrath to come. The saved in heaven estimate this privilege at a high rate. For having obtained salvation through the preaching of the gospel, they can never cease to bless their God for calling them by his word of truth. Oh, that you knew it and that I knew it. On your dying beds, the listening to a gospel sermon will seem another thing than it seems now. Right? Here's another Spurgeon quote. Listen to this one. Do you know, my dear unsaved hearer, what God's estimate of the gospel is? Do you not know that it has been the chief subject of his thoughts and his acts from all eternity? He looks on it as the grandest of all of his works. You cannot imagine that he has sent his gospel into the world to be a football for you to play with. That you may give it a kick like Felix did when he said to Paul, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. Which we just read. 
You surely cannot believe that God sent his gospel into the world for you to make a toy of it. And to say, as Agrippa said to Paul, which comes in the next chapter, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And then put it away. Put away all thought of it out of your souls. You cannot even speak of it irreverently without committing a great sin. John MacArthur, Pastor MacArthur. All the years I've been aware of Charles Charles Spurgeon and John MacArthur, I never knew this, but they were both born on the same day. You know that? They had the same birthday. Um, Very appropriate connection, I would say. John MacArthur said this concerning the gospel. He said it in an interview, so it sounds very conversational. But On the road to Emmaus, Jesus said, Look, I'm the theme of the Old Testament. Right? Because it says in that passage that he opened the scriptures to them. Starting with the Psalms, Moses, everything. Right? And he went into the law, the prophets, and the holy writings, and spoke to them all the things concerning himself. It's anticipation of Christ in the Old Testament. It's incarnation in the Gospels. It's proclamation in the book of Acts, which we're studying now. It's explanation in the epistles. It's glorification or exaltation in the book of Revelation. If you're a sequential expositor, you never get far away from Christ. You may be looking directly into his face in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're then hearing his gospel being proclaimed throughout the book of Acts. If you preach through the New Testament, by the time you finish Acts, you haven't taken a breath without Jesus Christ being at the center of it. Then you get into the epistles, and immediately they're explaining who he is, and why he came, and what he accomplished. We talk a lot when we preach here, when I preach here, we we talk a lot about the teachings that are made to Christians concerning how we ought to live while we're here. And we will continue always to do that. For those teachings are important. But let us never forget, even as we read this passage about Felix and Paul, let us never forget that the centerpiece of the Bible, the centerpiece of this passage we're reading, and what is to be the centerpiece of your life here on earth, is the spreading of the message of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel. When we stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for ourselves, it says that at the judgment seat of Christ, our works will be judged. That's right. For Christians, that is. Our works will be judged. It's not a judgment of whether you go to heaven or hell or not. Right? The judgment of where you spend eternity happened at the cross. That's the subject of the gospel message. Your sin was crucified with Christ. He became sin for us. He received our, the penalty for our sins in his own body on the tree, as Peter said. Right? But there is a judgment for Christians. And that judgment for Christians involves our works since we have been redeemed, reconciled, regenerated, born again, since we've been, become children of God. What is it that you think we're going to give an account for? 
You think that he's going to stand there and go over all of the times that you slipped up and you sinned and you failed and you fell short? He took the penalty for that when he died. That judgment's done. The blessing of being a Christian is that our sin has been eternally dealt with. What we're going to be judged for is our works. It actually says that. We're going to be judged for our works, whether they're good or bad. Caesar, should he live or should he die? But it's not life or death. It's works, good or bad. And then there's reward. What is it that you think is at the center of all of that? That you were nice and bought good gifts for your children at the holidays? You know, that you were a nice person? What do you think it is that is at the center of those works, whether good or bad? God delights, as Spurgeon said, from before creation, the single thing that was on God's mind was spreading the good news to a people that he had not even made yet. Don't you know that when we're accountable before the Lord... I would think that the chief thing that we're accountable for is our role in preaching the gospel to other people. Let's take a look at this passage at Acts because I think one of the things that holds the Christian back from fully devoting himself or herself to the spread of the gospel is a sense or a feeling that just nobody seems to respond. You ever been there? Sometimes we don't share the gospel maybe because we're afraid. Sometimes maybe we don't share the gospel because we don't really believe it ourselves. Examine your hearts. Sometimes we think it's somebody else's job. But a lot of times if you're a Christian who is earnestly seeking to share the gospel, maybe one of the things that's discouraging for you is standing for seven hours at a street fair and handing out a thousand gospel tracts and not seeing one person come to church. May I say to you, that's none of your concern. God is glorified. God is pleased. God is delighted in the spreading of his word. The single thing that occupies his own immeasurable infinite mind. Now that his son has paid the price with his blood. The single thing that occupies his mind most. Is likely that his children whom he has redeemed. Are taking that message of redemption that was brought to them. And taking it to others. Maybe what holds us back sometimes is. We just seem to preach it a lot. And it doesn't seem like a lot of people respond. I've, I've battled with those thoughts. I've battled with those thoughts for 20 years as the pastor of this church. Wondering, looking sometimes, uh, uh, looking sometimes a carnal, envious eye at uh, other churches maybe that are bigger. You know, not hard to find that. Although there are many that are smaller, to be fair. Even though I know the facts that something like, I believe it's 70% of American Christians belong to churches that have 100 members or less. 
you just don't know about them because they're not on television and they're not writing books and doing all sorts of things. They're just little groups of Christians that assemble together like this one. Even though I know that, sometimes it's like, well, we preach the gospel all the time and it's just hard to understand why more people don't respond. May I say to you, if you are a committed spreader of the gospel, if not a single person responds in your life, first of all, be comforted. Look at the example of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, who was called to preach and call to repentance the nation of Judah, and not one person from the whole nation repented and turned back to God, and then they were judged. So you're in some good company as a preacher. The Apostle Paul, who we're reading, experienced rejection time and again to the point of stoning and beating and being left for dead. No. The thought that you need to get in your mind is this. God is thrilled when one of his children spreads his word. There is no doubt about that. You just saw in the previous chapter in this very book that the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem to preach the gospel and stood in front of the Jews and never even got a chance to open his mouth about Jesus before he was persecuted and arrested. And Jesus stood before him and basically said, I am really pleased with all this. Even though he never even got a chance to preach it, not one person repented and believed. The Lord is pleased when his children go about the work of spreading the gospel that he shed his blood and died to bring to us. Hallelujah. Are you with me, Christian? Yes. If you're not, what else are you thinking about? Amen. This is God's aim. This is God's passionate desire to spread the gospel in this life. And he calls you, welcomes you to be part of it. Amen. I don't know, maybe I'm just a little crazy, but it's like, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, you can do real simple things. I made, a, I made a commitment back in the beginning of the year. So there's three months left in the year. I like to go to the McDonald's over here by the, I think I said this once before. I, I like to go to the McDonald's over here by the high school, you know. Sometimes there's kids there, but always people. And I, I like to sit there and drink, you know, I'm old, I'm an old man now, you know. So I get senior coffee. It's 75 cents for a cup of coffee when you hit 55 years old at McDonald's. There's your little public service announcement. So I go there a lot. And, and, and I drink all, Yeah, 80 cents with tax. That's true. Yes, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. So, 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 so you sit there. And, and, and I just made a commitment back in the beginning of the year. Every time I go, I'm going to give out at least one gospel tract to someone else sitting in the restaurant. And most of the time, that has led to me walking around the entire restaurant and just hanging. And I, 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 so far, to this day, I've just done that every single time. I'm not saying that to like speak of myself. I'm just saying that there's a delight, there's a joy, there's a, there's a simple thing. And it's led to other conversations. It's led to a sitting. We even had the online prayer time once over there, right? And, and afterwards, just had a few young guys to witness to and everything else. Look, there's just all kinds of ways that you can be involved in spreading the word of God and God is delighted when his word is spread. It's not one of those things where you say, well, Lord, I want to preach the gospel to people. If it's your will, let me do it. Look, it's good to say, let your will be done. I mean, like he taught us to pray, but you don't need to ask God if it's it's his will to preach the gospel to people because he already expressed it to you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There, you know his will. 
right? If it's moving, if it's breathing, if there are signs of life, it falls under the heading every creature, right? So go and spread the word, man. Spread the gospel. So you're worried that like, well, you know, you give out tracts, you talk to people, you explain the gospel. I watch Ray Comfort videos, you know, and he preaches the gospel to people and it never seems like anybody in that moment repents or believes, which is not true. They do sometimes. But, but uh, and, and yet like discouraged. Look, the part about this that I wanted to look at was Felix's response to the gospel and then like a little survey of what we've seen in the book of Acts so far about responding to the gospel. So here's what we know. Felix, verse 22 says, uh, we know that he already had some knowledge of the way. So Felix is someone who is in tune enough with what is going on in his provincial governorship to know that there is this way among the Jews who he is the ruler over. He's the Roman ruler over Judea. And so uh, the Jewish people that live in Judea are under his authority on behalf of Caesar in Rome. And he knows that among the Jews in Judea, there's this movement that started off back when Pilate was his predecessor. uh, and, and, And they call it the way. And it has to do with this, you know, this, this Galilean carpenter's son who Pilate crucified on behalf of the Jewish people back in the day, right? And uh, so he has a knowledge of what this is about. Now here comes Paul, who used to be Saul and used to be part of this group of religious leaders that now want him dead. And he's a proponent of this way. So he has some knowledge of what's going on here. He has a little bit of an advantage. And after he hears, after he hears, we're told this. He says, uh, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he puts it off, right? So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, told him not to forbid any of friends to come visit for him. Now after his day, after some days, he brings his wife in and they sit and they listen to him concerning the faith in Christ. So now, now he's going to get like, not just the awareness of what's happening in his kingdom, but now he's got the apostle Paul. Imagine that, you know, someone witnessed to you, the apostle Paul witnessed to Felix. Right? So he has the Apostle Paul there sharing about the gospel. And we went over the outline there in verse 25. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, look at the response. Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So there you hear what he says. But then you're told what was going on in his heart. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So, so he would send for Paul and Paul would come and Paul would talk more about these things. Paul would talk more about faith in Christ. But all he was trying to do was give him an opportunity to give him a bribe to let him go. And secular history notes that Felix was famous for like being very persuadable by bribes. And so we have... We have him giving lip service to being interested and having Paul come in. Now, if you're Paul, you might be in those situations, you know, where you get a chance to witness to someone and you think they're interested and they're not. 
Was Paul wasting his time? No. Was God not glorified that every time Paul had an opportunity to preach, he took it? No. Of course God was glorified and was honored. The job of the faithful witness is to just witness to whatever God puts in front of you. And so here is Paul doing that. And this goes on for a while, for a couple of years, until Felix's term as the uh, governor there is over. And, uh, and he actually leaves, and he leaves Paul bound in prison as a favor to the ones who want him killed. So that kind of shows you where his heart was. I got to thinking about Felix's response, which was what? Felix's response was self-motivated, carnal, not believing, right? Felix did not come to faith in Christ. And if he never <coughs> repented in some point that's not presented to us in history or in scripture, then he died in his sins and his fate is eternity in hell. That's how the gospel preacher thinks because that's the truth. That's what matters. But I got to thinking about how people respond to the gospel. Because sometimes, sometimes we might be inclined to make judgments about whether we're going to be involved or what we're going to do based on how we want people to respond. you know what I mean? The preaching of the gospel is not something you undertake in a way that's like, well, let's just do it this way because they might respond. Let's not talk about this negative sounding thing so much because we really want people to, and we start custom tailoring the message because we want to get a, we want to get a response out of people. We start developing like, you know, grand altar calls and all these, these things that might like persuade people just to come and just to pray that prayer, you know, and just, just get them in, whatever we can do. That's not our call. Our call is to do what Paul did. You get put in front of someone, you explain to them righteousness, self-control, the judgment to come. You preach to them the truth of the gospel of Christ. But I got to thinking about like how people respond. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Let's look at the parable of the sower again, quickly. Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, 1. He began to teach by the sea. There's a great multitude there. He gets into the boat, right? So Christ is out in a boat on the water so more people on the shore can see him. Verse 2 says he taught them many things by parables. So verse 3. Listen. Behold. A sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said, to you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins should be forgiven them. A quote from Isaiah's call to go and to preach. And he said to them, now here you go, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? That's an important statement, right? In other words, if you don't get what Jesus is teaching about how the word of God affects hearers, how will you ever understand the rest of his parables? And what were the rest of his parables about? Bob read a couple of them to you earlier today, right? What were the rest of the parables about? They're about the kingdom. He uses his parables to teach people about the kingdom. But if you don't understand this parable about how the word of God hits people on their ears, if you don't understand this one, how are you going to understand the rest of the teachings about the kingdom of God? You don't understand the kingdom of God unless you understand that the kingdom of God is made up of people who respond rightly to the preaching of the word of God. God's kingdom is not made up of religious achievers. God's kingdom is not made up of outwardly and self-righteous people. God's kingdom is not made up of religious people. God's kingdom is made up of people who hear his word, receive it deep down in the themselves and it begins to have an effect on their lives to the point where they produce fruit and I believe while there are many descriptions of different kinds of fruitfulness in the Bible the chief thing as I said is obedience to God in spreading the message to other people that didn't get one amen but that's probably the most important thing that I said today I mean Jesus literally said if you don't get this you don't get the rest of it Uh, Christ's teaching. Look. So he goes on and he explains this. The sower sows the word. These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sowed. When they hear Satan comes, takes it away. What was sown in their hearts, right? So those are the seeds that fell by the wayside. It's like the word of God is preached and Satan just yoink, just just blinds their eyes, just whatever. They (coughs) They don't receive it. Likewise, these are the ones on the stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. They have no root in themselves. And so they only endure for a time. Afterward, tribulation, persecution arises for the word's sake. Immediately they stumble. Right? So those are people, they hear the word of God and they're glad when they hear it. But then when they realize what it really is, something that might actually bring trouble into their lives. Nope. Not interested. And, and the scary thing, brothers and sisters, is how many modern churches, this is another subject for another day, but how many modern churches do whatever they can to take any offense, any stumbling, any struggle, any battle, any persecution, any hardship, any burden that it might put on someone's lives. They just want to strip it away and make it as easy as possible. In other words, I think churches are filled with people like this that have received the gospel because they like it. And they like the positive benefits of it. But the church is functions and runs in a way so that no trouble ever comes to them. And so there's no testing of whether it's authentic or not. Then, these are the ones among the thorns. 
They hear the word, and the cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches and desire for other things enters in, the word becomes unfruitful. So they produce no fruit. They produce no fruit because even though they receive the word, they love the world more. The cares of this world enter their hearts, and the effect, the effect of the cares of the world on the heart of the believer is a choking of the word so that, not that the word goes away, but that it becomes unfruitful. And then, then, we're not done yet, they're the ones that are sown on good ground. It's those who hear the word, accept it. You notice, you notice, you see the word accept? You see it? Are you looking at it? You're looking at your Bibles, right everybody? Verse 20, you see the word accept? You see the word after it? It? You see the punctuation mark after it? What's the punctuation mark? It's a comma, right? It's not period. In other words, that's not the end of the story. In other words, the word that falls on the good ground, the word that's sown on the good ground, are not just those who hear the word and accept it, period. That's not it. That's not the end of the story. You don't just know that someone's a believer because they heard the word and they accepted it. We rush to that conclusion all the time. And then we stick them in a church where they're insulated from any sort of trouble of any kind in their lives. And there's no testing. And so there's no growth and there's no maturity. And it's like playing roulette with your spiritual state. They hear the word, they accept it, and bear fruit. Different levels. 30, 60, 100. Bob, Bob, Deacon Bob quoted last week uh, Tozer, who said too many Christians are content to be 30-fold. That was a different subject for a different day, and that different day was last Sunday, so you got that. But the point here is what? Every true believer, when he hears the word, accepts it and goes on to fruitfulness. Now, let me ask you a question. Ready? How many, how many kinds of hearers are there in the story? Nobody wants to take it on? Three? Four? It's a trick question. How many are there? Two. There are those who believe it, and there are those who don't. That's it. Now, you'll notice this. Ready? This is what's great about this parable. There's all different kinds of unbelievers. There's the one where the word goes in one ear and out the other. There's the one who hears the word and likes it, but when they realize that being a Christian is hard, they shelve it and they go away. Or they find a church where they can slide in and nobody will bother them or require anything of them. Or... They love the world so much that it chokes off any fruitfulness in their lives. But they're content to just keep putting on the show. But they're all the same. They're not believers. And then there are believers. And even though some are 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold, they're all believers. They're all saved. Because they heard the word of God and they accepted it and it's made an impact on their lives to the point where as they live, they bear fruit. Amen? Amen. So while 
on the outset, you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being a little clever with you. You're right, if you, those of you who said four. But really, there's two, right? There's those who believe it, and there's those who don't. There's all different, there's all different ways that a person does not believe. But there's only one way that a person does believe. And that is they hear the word of Christ, they accept it, and their lives bear fruit. And Jesus says, if you don't get this, how are you going to get the rest of it? In the passage of scripture that Deacon Bob read, two of those very short parables were what? About the field? The guy who, like, how how do you get this if you don't understand this? The kingdom of God, the kingdom, that's the reward. That's the reward. The kingdom. When Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. First thing, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, right? So we start off with worship and then the first thing we ask for is, your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. It's how the Bible ends in the book of Revelation. Yeah, there's a lot of suffering in the last days, but even so, come, Lord Jesus. How do you get the kingdom if you don't get the fact That the kingdom is made up of people who hear the word of God, accept it, and go on to bear fruit. The kingdom, Jesus said, in the passages that Bob read up here before, is like a guy who finds a field. And I'm going to paraphrase something that's already a parable. But whether it's the field or it's the pearl, right? The parable of the field and the pearl. In either one, what's the basic theme? The person just gives up everything to go for it. Because, why? Why? Because they realize they have found the most precious, the most valuable thing that anyone could ever find. They have found the path to the kingdom of God. And they have found that the pathway to the kingdom of God is that blessed, beautiful, glorious person that we call the Lord Jesus Christ. They found it. And so everything else becomes insignificant in comparison. Sell everything and buy it. I don't care what it costs. Sell everything. Get me that field. I don't care what it costs. Find that pearl. Find it. Because it's the most valuable thing. Listen. how How do you possibly understand that if you don't understand that there are people who hear the word of God, but they love the world more, so they never go on to fruit. How, how do you get the, la- the former if you don't understand the latter? That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, here's a quick survey for you of ways that people respond to the gospel, and then we'll go downstairs and sing. Listen to this. As you've read through Acts, like both Spurgeon and MacArthur said in the quotes that I read before, You're reading about the proclamation of the gospel. It's not just an itinerary. It's not just history. It's about Jesus being preached and about the way people respond. Ready? I'm going to do this really quick. Write these references down if you want to look them up later. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 36, Peter's preaching and he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, here's their response. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's 
a response to the gospel. They were humbled, real. They were cut to the heart. That is, the word of God cut right through them, sharper than any two-edged sword, as it says elsewhere in Scripture. The word cut right through them and brought them to the place. It was like, what are we going to do? Here's what you do. You repent and believe and you will receive this gift is for you. Good response, right? Acts chapter 4 and verse 1 says, As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody. What's that? That's another reaction to the gospel. That's an entirely different one, isn't it? We hate it. We need it stopped. Still in Acts chapter 4. What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all. That's the healing of the lame man at the uh, beautiful gate in chapter 3. Um... It's evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. And from now on, they speak no man to no man in this name. Threaten them that they speak to no man in this name. So they called them, commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. And you see there what? You see both responses. You see how Peter and John responded to the gospel when Jesus came into their lives. We can't but preach him. And you see how the religious leaders responded. Do not preach in this name anymore. See, there's two responses. Believers, fruit. Non-believers, bad fruit. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, right? Stephen preaches and he's preaching to this synagogue of the freedmen, these these uh, uh, Jewish people who are against the gospel. And, and he says to them, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hardened ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. What was their response? When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, just like the ones in chapter 2. But the response was very different. The ones who were cut to the heart in chapter 2 were like, men and brethren, what do we do? And they were told, repent and believe. And 3,000 of them got saved that day. These people, same thing. They were cut to the heart. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears. That's another response to the gospel. Don't want to hear it. You ever been there? I've been there. Stop. Just stop talking. Heard it all. Don't want to hear it. I'm already good with God. I hear, my heart breaks when I hear that. Street fair, I had a number of people going by talking to them about the Lord, and they just cut me off and saying they're good with God. My heart breaks because I can sense that you're obviously not because you'd want to listen to this. If you were, you'd rejoice in this. They just stop. Don't want to hear it. They pick up stones, and Stephen's dead for the glory of God. Acts chapter 13. Now we're in the Paul's ministry. When the Jews go out of the synagogue, this is in Antioch of Pisidia, the Gentiles 
begged that these words might be preached to them next Sabbath. Right? Still waiting for that to happen. 20 years. Waiting for someone to come to me and say, please preach that again. No one's even, man, guys, look, look at me stone-faced. That was like, that was like my A-list humor. All right, not going to lie. Okay, so now look. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Contradicting, blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So, so what do you get? You get both. You have people that are like, yes, please preach these things again. And you get other people opposing it, blaspheming it, blocking it. That's what the gospel does. Jesus didn't come to bring peace, man. He came to bring a sword. Right? This is what it is. How about this one? At midnight, Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Why? Because they had a service that night? No. Because they had just been beaten and they were laying there with their backs open. And they laid there praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Wow. Talk about good fruit. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were opened or everyone's chains were loosed and the keeper of the prison awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Paul called out with a loud voice, do yourself no harm, we're all here. What do you mean we're all here? All the prisoners. Listen, don't you think like one or two or ten or twenty of them would run away? Hey, we're out of here. This is amazing. Look what God did. Look what their God did. Their God opened the prison doors. We got, not one of them left. This is the most amazing part of the story. Do yourself no harm. We're all here. So, you ever stop and think about that? Why did God open the prison doors and then none of them left? Just to show the power of what was going on. He didn't open the doors to free them because they all went back into the prison after this was over. Good fruit. They knew they were in the right place because they were listening to the word of God. So the, 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 they bring them out and this jailer, this prisoner says, Sirs, not the prisoner, the prison guard, says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in all your household. You, all your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So they, they, they witnessed to the jailer and they witnessed to the jailer's house. What does that mean? That means Paul and Silas were taken from the prison by the jailer to the jailer's house. All of this happened in the middle of the night, unbeknownst to the officials who were over it all. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized because they all heard the word and they all believed the word. And so they all got baptized. Right? What's that? Good response to the gospel. Acts chapter 17, last one. Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked. This is when Paul is preaching in Athens. I love this, this sermon. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Boom. Listen, you, 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 think, you think I'm a little crazy or a little extreme when I say the thing that God most longs for us to do, man, is to walk in our freedom and use it to preach the gospel to every creature. Do you hear what that sentence says there? 
Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. What times of ignorance? All of the Gentile gods, all of the false gods, all of the forsaking of the creator of the heavens and the earth, all of the turning away from Yahweh, all of the forgetting of him and denying of him and making idols and not being thankful to him, all of the stuff that Romans chapter 1 condemns the whole world for. These times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he calls all men to repent. Why? Because his son bled and died for our sins. There's no more overlooking it. My beloved son, my righteous beloved son gave his life to redeem people from their sins. No more overlooking it. You need to repent. It's a powerful word. It says that, it goes on to say that he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has ordained, that's Jesus, and he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And as soon as they heard of raising him from the dead, all the stupid stuff started. You know? And they did the same thing Felix did. Uh, we'll hear from you again on this matter. So Paul departed. There were a few people who got saved. But Paul left and none of them wanted to hear it because they thought the resurrection of the dead thing was just crazy. Did Paul fail? Well, a couple of people got saved, so No. But even if nobody did, of course he didn't fail. He did what the Lord has called us to do, which is share the gospel. Listen, don't be, look, you go through Acts, what do you see? You see some good responses to the gospel, you see some really bad responses to the gospel. But what you see is the gospel being preached. And that is what God still longs for each one of us to do today, is to preach the gospel to every creature. Listen, it's the theme of the book from beginning to end. You get it? Devote your life to the gospel. Don't be afraid of how people might or might not respond. Devote your life to the gospel. Look, yes, we're sinful. Don't sit and wait for yourself to become worthy or something like that. Because you never will. Your worthiness is Christ's righteousness which is imputed to you. That's it. He's our advocate. That's all we've got. That's all you've got. You need to believe that and trust that. And then go out and share that message with other people who need the same redemption that you got. Amen? Amen, Amen brothers and sisters? Amen. You receive the word today? Praise the Lord for his gospel. Praise the Lord for the ministry of the gospel. Praise the Lord that he allows us to be partakers in the ministry of the gospel. Use your freedom and your gifts, your knowledge, your liberty. Use the freedom you have in your salvation for the purpose of spreading the gospel of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, so much for this time we have together. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to devote ourselves to the preaching of your gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.